well. I want to tell you a story as I start off this morning. We're, we're looking at a series on parables, the stories that Jesus tells that uh, change our lives. They illuminate different aspects of truth and life. And I want to tell you a story about this chap or this couple. This is Eddie and Jean Stocko. Do any of you know them? They live in County Durham. Anyone been up to County Durham recently? No, you may or may not know them. Okay. So you might not know them personally. You might have come across this story because 50, get my dates right, 53 years ago, I think it was, 52 years ago, March 1966, Eddie was playing cricket. Loved playing cricket. He'd just got married six months before. And uh, as he was playing cricket, just as he was going, about to go out and play cricket, he took off his wedding ring because he didn't want it to get damaged or, or uh, anything happened to it. He took it off, and his wedding ring was engraved on the inside with a special message. And, and, he and he, his ring and jeans had the same message in, and, and so he put it somewhere safe and went to play cricket. The only thing was, when he finished playing the game and got back to look for where he'd put the ring, he couldn't find it. And you can imagine, six months into your marriage, this conversation doesn't go down well. Um, they're still together. I don't know how they got through that. But anyway, so uh, when he went back home, Jean offered to get him another ring made with the same inscription. And he said no, uh, because that one was irreplaceable. Obviously a sentimental chap. Uh, so he's not worn a ring like that for all those years. And then the news came out this just very recently, I think the last month or so, um, that the ring had been found. Now, it had been found because someone else was playing cricket on the same pitch, and a woman was, whose son was playing cricket was walking. I think she might have been walking a dog, but she was walking around the edge of the, the pitch, and there was a river going by, and she slipped and fell, just fell slightly and noticed in the mud something gleaming. And she noticed this ring from 52 years before, or how many years ago it was? Yeah, 52 years before. And she pulled it out, and she spoke to somebody about it. And the, I'll get this right, just to check. The person she spoke to about it was Eddie's brother, who happened to be stood there. Said, do you know who this might be? I've just found this. And amazing. So he's been reunited with the ring that he lost all those years before. Isn't that a lovely story? All of us can relate to this kind of thing, not because we've lost anything perhaps as important as wedding rings, but we lose things all the time. Some of us more than others. You know, you're forever, some of us are forever rummaging down the back of the sofa or kind of pacing around, have I got my wallet, my keys, all the rest of it. If you've ever been on a train or in, in London or on any other London transport, including taxis, and lost something, it ends up here. In 2017, there was a, a survey taken of the London Lost Property Office and just to, to track what was being lost and found on a daily basis. And these, the people that look after this are looking after 1,200 items daily that get discovered and taken into the lost property office. That's, at the moment, there was, at the end of 2017, there were 34,322 mobile phones. <laughs> so if you go in saying, years ago I got a Nokia, or now I've got a Samsung or, a, or an Apple, you're going to be in trouble trying to find it in that lot, aren't you? Uh, they've got 46,380 bags that have been handed in. And they're all filed, all stored. Eventually, things get sold on or you know, auctioned off, whatever. But I was intrigued to discover that amongst the things handed in to the London, uh, Transport for London Lost Property Office were a 40-inch TV. <laughs> now, you'd imagine if you were on the train with a 40-inch TV, you'd probably remember it. <laughs> but the one that most amused me was the life-size gorilla that they've got. 
No, it's not a real gorilla, but it's obviously a, a toy one. But life-size gorilla. And I think they've named it Eddie or something like that. Or that I'm just getting distracted by the last chap that was up. But this, why would you do that? But anyway, there's all these sort of things that are handed in, and all of us can identify with this sense of losing stuff. I suspect none of us have ever lost a life-size gorilla. Um, but we've lost things in the past. And all of us, if you've been out with a crowd of people, uh, or perhaps as a child, you, you've lost sight of someone, and for that moment you've had some anxiety about that situation. I've, I'm lost, or they're lost. And then you get found again. Jesus tells three stories in one chapter, or they're collated into one chapter in Luke's Gospel. Uh, and I want to read these two of the stories today and reference the third, because they're about this sense of being lost and found. Uh, and I believe they're profound stories that can help us today to understand something of God's love for us and something of his love for other people too. And they are these in Luke's Gospel, Luke 15, verses 1 to 7. And I'm going to read them to you just in case the words aren't terribly clear on the screen. Reading from the NIV, it says this, Now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering round to hear Jesus, but the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, This man welcomes sinners and eats with them. Then Jesus told them this parable, Suppose one of you had a hundred sheep and loses one of them. Doesn't he leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the lost sheep until he finds it? And when he finds it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders and goes home. Then he calls his friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me, I've found my lost sheep. I tell you that in the same way, there'll be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous people who do not need to repent. The next little story is this. Or suppose a woman has 10 silver coins and loses one. Doesn't she light a lamp, sweep the house, and search carefully until she finds it? And when she finds it, she calls her friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me, I've found my lost coin. In the same way, I tell you, there is rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Now, as we read those stories, we struggle a little bit to get back into the culture of them because most of us don't keep sheep. We certainly don't keep a hundred if any of you do keep sheep. And most of us, if we do lose something down the back of the sofa, probably don't go banging on our neighbor's doors going, I found the TV remote control. Come and celebrate. We tend to just get on with life and kind of we're quite glad that we found the thing we lost. But Jesus is tapping into something really significant and really important. And we will get a little bit back into the context of this so that we understand it. But there are some big important principles we can see here. And I think the first one is this, that without Jesus, we're lost. Now, Jesus is describing situations where items get lost initially, or an animal gets lost, then an item gets lost, and he tells a third story. And the third story is possibly one of the most well-known of Jesus' stories that he tells. And it's of a father who's got two sons. And as the story goes, one of the sons comes to his dad and says, Dad, I want what I will inherit when you die. I want it now. I want my share, which would have been a third of his dad's estate. And so somehow his dad releases some funds and his son goes off and squanders the money and spends the money and ends up in a pitiful state. He parties, he has some friends, and when he runs out of money, all the friends abandon him and leave him behind. And he's feeling desperate. And he comes to his senses and begins the journey home with a little saying running around his mind. 
uh, and a little, perhaps a little saying that he's practiced where he says, when I get home, I'll, I'll tell my dad that I'm not worthy to be his son, but I'll be his servant. And he just kind of brokenheartedly wanders home, awaiting the response that the father will give. And the father, Jesus tells us in the story, is looking all the time for his son. And he spies him walking in towards the village. And he runs towards him and, and kisses him on the cheek repeatedly, welcomes him. And he's delighted with him. He calls for the servant to bring the best robe and put him on him. He puts a ring on his finger and, and they invite him back and they have a feast and a celebration. And so there's three stories, one of a lost uh, sheep, one of a lost coin, and one of a lost son that Jesus tells that tell this, the group of people that he's talking to some very important things. Firstly of all, without Jesus, we're lost. And, and the reason he's telling these stories is because he's sitting talking to a group of people that he's already been preaching to, and he's had some tough stuff. Now, sometimes we hear messages, perhaps from this platform which, or, or elsewhere, which make us go, oh, I don't know if I quite want to hear that. But largely speaking, they're speaking encouragement and, and blessing. Well, the messages Jesus is teaching are a bit of both, but he's speaking one of those ouchy messages at this point. He's just been talking, before we get to this passage, about uh, giving up everything to follow him. He's just said, if you want to follow me, you've got to pick up your cross and follow me. And it's tough. And it's, it's hard. You, it's, I'm not playing here. He's saying, I'm not, I'm, this isn't just something you can do one day and give up the next. You can't just start and then not finish. You, if you're saying you want to follow me, you, it's going to cost you everything. If you're saying you want to be my follower, my disciple, it's going to mean that you say yes to me and no to the world again and again and again and again and again daily. And this is the message he's preaching. And the people that are left still listening are sinners and tax collectors and Pharisees and teachers of the law. He's got these four groups of people around him, divided really into two. And the religious people, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, are people who are trying to follow God wholeheartedly. And they've got certain requirements and rules that they put in place to keep themselves safe and keep themselves righteous and so they don't sin. And one of those requirements is they don't go near sinners and tax collectors and people who are not following God. They keep a distance. They keep themselves pure. And they keep away from those people that might contaminate them. They look down on them and, and because these, they're righteous and these other ones are not. And so they classify them as sinners as opposed to themselves being righteous. And that's why the Pharisees and the tax collectors, according to this passage, are muttering and saying, this man, Jesus, is welcoming sinners and eating with them. Now, teaching them might just be okay, even though the Pharisees probably didn't do that. But Jesus has gone a step further than that. He's actually hosting meals for them. He's welcoming them and eating with them. So somehow, whether he's borrowed someone's home or whether someone else is involved in hosting a party, Jesus is specifically the one extending an invitation and saying, come and eat with me. Now, in this culture at this time, table fellowship, eating together was incredibly precious and you chose your guests carefully. You didn't have the riffraff. You didn't have uh, people who weren't going to make you look good or, or kind of help you in society often. And Jesus is here welcoming those who were outcast because they were sinners, 
according to the righteous people, the religious people. And Jesus is telling three stories to show actually that the categories they're using, sinner and righteous, don't work. They just don't work. He's showing them that you can't grade people as either a sinner or righteous and somewhere along this, this spectrum. Jesus is standing in front of them as the only one who's holy, the only one who's following God's way and saying, guys, you're all in this together. You're all sinners. You're all lost is the word he uses. There's no distinction between you. Actually, you're all lost. And he tells these three stories of three things that were lost, a sheep, a coin, and a son. And in those three, we see the utter lostness of those items. If you Apparently, I'm not a shepherd, as you know. Those of you know me. But the, the sheep, when they are lost, if they lose the rest of the flock, they tend to sit down, according to the research I've done. They panic a bit and sit down or lie down. I don't know what a sheep does. Does it sit? Like, well, anyway, it stays still. And it waits because it's, it's panicking. It kind of, I'm, I'm, I'm lost, I don't know what to do, and it's isolated, and so it just sits. And some of them apparently can die in that state. I've certainly seen them on Dartmoor. I used to live in Devon, and sadly, you, you're sometimes driving through Dartmoor, and, and if they fall over, they're not able to get up again. And so you see them, they've just fallen over and died, and it's really sad. But they're kind of helpless on their own. And we see the utter lostness of this sheep who's on its own. We see the utter lostness of a coin. What, could, what can a coin do hidden away in a house somewhere? It can't be spent. It can't be used. It can't be treasured. It can't do anything other than be lost. It's got no power of its own to get back to its owner. And the son, the third story that Jesus tells, utterly broken, friendless, penniless, hungry, now, at this point, as Jesus is telling the stories, some of those listening are identifying themselves with those who are lost. Some of them are going, I'm a bit like that sheep. I'm a bit like that coin. I'm a bit like that son. And those are the ones Jesus is there to talk to. To say, my friend, yes, you are. And I've come to rescue you. Others are sitting listening. And they're getting more and more and more offended. They're getting more offended because of the way Jesus is communicating it. Because to them, a shepherd was a, a, an occupation that wasn't a holy occupation. The, the teachers of the law and the Pharisees would have treated shepherds as those who were untrustworthy. They were known for going on other people's territory and taking other people's things. And the first story Jesus tells is, is of a shepherd. Immediately, they're, they're feeling a little bit uncomfortable. Uh, the second story Jesus tells is of a woman searching her home, and the Pharisees didn't spend a great deal of time around women. They were isolated often from them and treated them slightly differently. Uh, and the third story Jesus tells is of a son who's been, been squandered all his father's money and a father who's generous towards his son. And the Pharisees would have been, and the teacher of the law would have been astounded that Jesus is using this illustration because the son is so offensive to his father when he says, Father, give me my inheritance. And the, son is so, the father is so foolish towards the son in their eyes as he runs towards him, as he showers him with praise. And we've got these two groups, and Jesus is saying to them, you're all lost. None of you really know where you're going. You can be busy and clever and productive and have all the theological knowledge, but still be lost. 
And the sad bit is that many don't know they're lost. It's as if half the crowd listening to him are following a sat-nav, but they've put the wrong postcode in, and they don't know they're going in the wrong direction. It's as if they just don't know they're lost. Like being given a map, and you don't know where your start point is, and you don't know where your end point is, and you're, you're trying to follow the map, and, and you're looking for markers, and maybe, maybe that hill is this bit here on the map, and you're just not sure. And it's like that. They just don't know they're going the wrong way. The truth is this, that we're born into a world where nobody knows where they're going. It's not that some just don't. It's that naturally you've got a whole world plowing along its own way, uh, not knowing where they're heading, not knowing what to do, not knowing where to go, not knowing how to get there. And Jesus is telling a story to those who, some of those who think they know where they're going and some who really know that they're lost. And he's saying, stop pretending that you know where you're going. The Bible calls this process repentance. When you cry out to God and you say, God, I I realize I'm lost. I realize I don't know where I'm going. Jesus in that passage talks about how um, it says, we might get the screen up in a moment. It's one of those technical hitch days today. Um, At the back of that passage, where are we now? At the bottom of this, it says there's more rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God. Thank you guys for getting that back up again. Uh, in presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. There's rejoicing over repentance. And it's repentance that's that marker that someone actually has the courage to say, Jesus, I realize as I'm listening, to, I'm listening to you, I'm lost. I need you. That's what repentance starts with, where we start by ter- we're able to turn around from the way we're going when we recognize that we're lost. And for many of us, that's how our journey with God started. Not because we suddenly realized how clever we were. Not because we read the Bible and it all made sense and we thought, yeah, I can intellectually understand this. But we got to a point in our lives when we realized that we were lost. That we didn't know where we were going. That we needed Jesus. And that's the moment. That's the moment of genius. Not on our part, but on God's when he says, finally. Finally, you've stopped blundering around pretending you know where you're going. And for once you've said, I don't know where I'm going. Now I can help. Do you remember that day for you? Yeah, a few of you do. Do you remember that day when you finally woke up and realized this is it? I don't know where I'm going. Help. And you cried out and Jesus said, yeah, I've been waiting for this day. Here I am. And he went, wow. Thank you, Lord. Now I know where I'm going. And it's the first time in our lives we actually know where we're going because we repent, we turn around from trying to do things our own way, from trying to forge our own path and saying it all relates, it depends on me. And we say, God, I'm trusting in you because only you know where you're going. Only you know where I am and where we're going. So if that's you today and you found that you've lost your way and you don't know where you are, the action point is to cry out to Jesus, to say, I need you, Lord. I don't know where I am. I need you today. Would you help me? If you do know, as a result of what Jesus has done, that you're walking with him, then be thankful that he found you. But let's also keep dependent on him. Because there's a danger that we say, Lord, you found me. Thank you very much. And I'm going to go my own way now. Thanks a lot. And it's like there's one marker on the map where we know that Jesus made a difference in our lives, but we're still going off in our own way. And that's not what this is all about. 
we just end up in a mess again and we end up having to say to God again, I, I thought I knew where I was going and I don't anymore. I'm lost again. I don't know my surroundings. I don't know where I am. And Jesus will again show us that he knows where we are and find us and rescue us. So if you know where you are, then keep depending on God. Let's move on. All of heaven rejoices when the lost are found. Most of us will have been aware of that story of the Thai football team who were lost and uh, had wandered into a cave for an one hour's exploration. And as they were there, the rain started to come down. And just after the entrance of the cave, a pool began to fill. And they realized they couldn't get back out of the cave again. So they went further in. And I don't know how they ended up where they ended up. Um, But we waited and we waited and we waited. As the news came, sort of hour after hour, day after day, is there any news? And teams had traveled from around the world to search the caves. No news. Do you remember this? No news, no news, no news. And then finally, that day came when you saw those those pictures of the boys in the cave and a diver calling out to you, how many of you are there? And one child there knew English and knew how to respond and called back out. There's 12 or there's 13 or however many there were. And there was this crowd of them and they were cheering and great, we're coming back. Many more people are coming back to get you. And then the news filtered out around the world and people rejoicing. Rejoicing at the moment people had been found. They hadn't been rescued at that point. They'd just been found. But being found was incredible, wasn't it? As we read these stories, Jesus tells us again and again that the man finding the sheep or the woman finding the coin or the father finding the son are like this, that they then say rejoice with me I've found my lost sheep and he goes on to say I tell you that in the same way there'll be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who don't need to repent it's a play on words he's looking at these two groups and saying well if you don't think you need to repent well there's a lot more rejoicing over these guys than you think there ought to be and there's probably a little bit less rejoicing over you at the moment than you think there ought to be because actually they're in a better place because they've recognized they're lost But this is a glimpse for us into heaven. It's one of those moments in the Bible where you get, it's like the clouds part and there's a a ray of sunlight and you can see something of the heavenly nature as we look and we see here that when anybody repents and turns to God, there's rejoicing in heaven. There's a party. Rejoicing. Now, when you're lost and you're found, funny things happen. You will have seen this, I'm sure. When parents lose their kids, and the kids lose their parents. There's, sometimes the child is crying out and the parents frantically searching. Where are they? Sometimes the child isn't crying out and the parents frantically searching. But sometimes what happens is the parent and child are reunited again. And I saw this just the other day. And the parent and child were reunited. And the first thing the parent did to the child was say, Why did you do that? What were you thinking? Don't run off like that. And it's like the parents looked inside at all the anxiety and all the panic and all the fears of guilt and they've just gone, there you go, it's your fault. I'm not responsible, you are. Even though they're the adult and the child has just been pottering about and lost sight of the adult. And, and some of us can have this approach with God that we think if we're going to go to God and go, God, I'm, I'm lost again. I'm sorry that God's going to treat us like that. But these parables give us that 
glimpse through the, through the clouds to show us what God is really like. And so every time that happens, God's rejoicing. There's a party. There's a celebration. Why? Because one who is plowing their own route through life has turned around and gone, God, I want to go your way. Forgive me. I was lost and I want to be found. There's rejoicing. Secondly, this helps us know God more and to love and appreciate him more. It changes our picture of God. God is holy. God is righteous. He's just. He he is perfect in all his ways. And we're not. And when we think about how to approach a holy and awesome and perfect God, naturally there's some distance. We go, well, Lord, you're holy and I'm not. I want to hide away. But again, this passage shows us that because of what Jesus has done for us, we can come close and we're welcomed into God's presence with rejoicing. My encouragement to each of us is to stop living like God is disappointed with us. To start living as those over whom there's a heavenly party. Would that change our perspective? I think it might do. Thirdly, God is passionate in his pursuit of the lost. Jesus says, if one of you lost a sheep, doesn't he leave the 99 in open country and go after the lost sheep until he finds it? That, that Thai rescue operation in which one diver lost their life was one in which people showed their incredible diligence and determination in seeking after those boys, trying to get them out of those caves. It was as if nothing else mattered. Now, I don't have an illustration to, from my own life to match that, to match anything like the intensity of it. Uh, because those guys were giving everything to try and get out. One guy gave his life to get them out of those caves. Uh, the closest most of us get is when we've lost somebody, uh, we lost sight of somebody and we need to find them again. Maybe we're responsible for them. Uh, and nothing else quite compares. The, the closest I could get was when I was a youth leader looking after a group and we'd taken them to Alton Towers. And it was my bright idea to take a group uh, we went year after year after year. We went because there was a Christian event on in the evening, concert, and people were hearing the gospel. It was exciting. And, and, and I was doing some work in schools and decided not only to take my youth group along, but to fill the coach with the kids from schools that I was working with. It seemed like a great idea at the time. And we had some leaders, and we'd planned it all out, and everybody had to meet up at certain points, and the youngest ones were supervised. They had groups with them. We, mobile phone reception was poor, so we had walkie-talkies with us. We got consent forms. We knew we could go to the first aid points whenever we'd lost a young person, if anyone got lost, so we'd kind of touring around them every hour, checking in, have we lost? No, we haven't lost anyone, everybody's okay. So all of that's going on all day, as well as queuing up and waiting for the rides and trying to get them to the concert and trying to get them back again, you know, just all that's going on all day. And then towards the middle section, there's a moment where you finish all the rides and you have to pause to go to the concert. And you have to gather everybody back up again. Now we'd filled a 50-seater coach, which is exciting. And Yet, some of them had decided not to turn back up again on time. So I'm responsible. Uh, they're just having a good time. They're not the youngest ones. We've got them. This is the next age group up from school. And, and I'm kind of thinking to myself, well, they might be okay. They're probably just teenagers having a good time. But I'm feeling responsible for them. So I'm now panicking. And so I start going to the first day point. Anybody been handed in? And I'm pacing around the entrance area to Alton Towers, listening to the canned music that they play on repeat again and again and I'm thinking if they play that jolly tune again I'm, you know, I'm, but nothing else mattered in that moment other than finding those young people nothing else mattered 
Uh, there were signs for everything. There were rides I could go on. I could get whatever food I wanted within reason and from a fast food place at that time. But you could do anything. All the excitements were around me, but nothing else mattered other than finding those young people again and getting them onto the next stage, onto the concert. As it was when they turned up three quarters of an hour, an hour late, just ambling along. Oh, they're here. Come on, you lot, let's go. And we got them to the next bit, but it was fine. But there's that moment where when you're looking for something, you're not caring about anything else. If you've lost a child or you've lost sight of somebody from your group and there's a special offer in the, sale, in the shop as you're walking past, you don't go in to buy a bargain. You're searching for that child. If you've lost something around the house and it's precious to you, you're not distracted by the, the hoovering that needs doing or the other jobs that you need to do. You're finding that item. Why? Because you're passionate about it because you're committed to it. And Jesus is saying, the shepherd's prepared to leave 99 sheep in open country to go and find the one. All the commentators seem to think that there's probably other shepherds around, that they can look after them while he's gone and all that kind of stuff. We, we don't know. It's not in the story, but that seems quite plausible. But the thought is this, that he's prepared to leave and go, to, to leave and go on a journey, an epic journey of finding the sheep because he feels responsible. And the Bible tells us page after page of how Jesus came about how the Word of God became life. How the Word who was, in, was made incarnate, He became man and suffered, lived and suffered and died for us. Jesus held nothing back. Held nothing back. There was no price He wasn't prepared to pay. We sing a song, I think it's called Reckless Love. It's certainly got that line in it, which is trying to sum up something of this way that, that God is prepared to pay any price. He doesn't even look at the cost. He doesn't go, well, that seems about right. Uh, you know, he, he just doesn't seem to look. He, he, and it's got this line in it as well about leaving the 99 to go after the one. It's trying to sum up this sense that, that God is prepared to go through any lengths, regardless of the cost, regardless of the shame, regardless of the humiliation, that Jesus will face, regardless of the whipping, the scourging, the words that people say, regardless of the pain of the nails in his wrists and in his feet, regardless of the fact that the people he's dying to save don't care. He's relentlessly passionate in his pursuit of you and of me and of those who are lost and still don't care. He's still relentlessly passionate in his pursuit of them. And today, God's passion towards the lost is the same as it was then. It's unhindered and undimmed, and he hasn't given up, and he's not packed it away, and he's not moved on to something else. He's still searching, and he's still looking, and he's still reaching out to those who are lost. And Jesus is saying in these stories, that's why I'm here. That's why I'm talking to these guys, because I'm passionate for them. And nothing's going to stop me. I was thinking about this passage and the, the context of it with Jesus talking to the tax collectors and the sinners and thinking, really, if you'd got a plan that was well thought out on a human level to go and influence the entire world, you wouldn't start with the tax collectors and the sinners. You'd start with the nobles, the high, the mighty. You'd have a marketing strategy. You'd go to the influencers who could tell the message around, and they already had a natural group of people who were listening to them. You'd go to the philosophers, you'd the religious teachers. You'd go to this, these crowds of people who could then dissipate and spread the message. You wouldn't go to these people, but Jesus is saying, I'm passionate about them, and I wouldn't 
rather be anywhere else. Jesus shows us that no cost is too much. So the action point from this, um, before I move on to my final point, is this. If you've lost your passion for the lost, or if you're struggling to identify with God's passion for the lost, then reconnect again with him. Reconnect with God's passion for the lost. He's not more passionate about anything else than those he's made and those he loves and those who are lost. Then my prayer would be that we reconnect, each one of us, with that desire of God for those who don't know him. I wandered around a... Uh, we went to meet my brother yesterday, We country house and lovely gardens and all the rest of it. And I wandered around, probably mindful of my message today, thinking I don't know anything about any of these people who are tourists like me wandering about at this property. I don't know anything about them, but maybe some of them are lost. Maybe some of them don't know that where they're going. We all had little maps to follow the trails around. We knew where we were going, but I mean spiritually, in real life. We didn't know where we were going. Maybe some of them were lost. And the truth is this, that Jesus is searching for each and every one. He actually knows where they are, but they don't know where they are. So that's why there's that searching language used. He, he's wanting to find them that they might see. He's desperate that they might know him. Finally, this is the bit you may not have noticed before from this familiar passage, but you may have done. When the shepherd finds the sheep, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders and goes home. Not only does the shepherd commit to the journey to go and find the sheep, he joyfully picks it up and puts it on his shoulders and goes home. How many of us joyfully wander around with a sheep on our backs? It's not a normal thing, but not only is it not normal, it's quite uncomfortable, I would have thought. Sheep are heavy, woolly, scratchy, itchy. You know, we've all seen the romanticized images of Jesus with the little lamb, but this might not have been a little lamb. It might have been a great big hulking sheep this shepherd is carrying. And he's got this sheep around his shoulders and he's carrying it home joyfully. We've seen a bit about the joy, but I want just to encourage you with this, that God's interest doesn't stop with the moment you're found, but that he's committed to the journey home. And for some of us, We've had our ups and downs. We've been found by Jesus and we've gone our own way again and we're wondering, what, what's he going to do this time? Has he given up on me? The answer is no. He wants to pick us up and walk us home. He's celebrating, but he's taking us to a bigger celebration one day when we'll fully rejoice. But being carried home is hard work. Jesus is committed to doing it. The shepherd carries home. The woman searches the house for the coin and she searches and she searches and she searches and she finds it and she puts it with the others. The father runs to the son and brings him home. Jesus is committed to searching out the lost until the nations are reached. He's waiting to return until those who need to hear have heard. And then he's coming back again. My word to us today is that Jesus is bringing us home. So be encouraged. So from these three simple stories, I wonder if we can live with gratitude that we're found. If we are, if we're not, today's a great day to say, I know I need to be found. Secondly, can we live with dependence on God? Not as those who want to be very thankful for being found once, but we're now off our own way. Thank you very much. No, we're prepared to live utterly dependent on the king of kings. Thirdly, that we live in line with God's passions 
He's passionate for the lost. May we be too. May we be kind to those around us. May we be gracious to those around us. May we be presenting Christ's love to those around us. Finally, may we hold on because God's bringing us home. Shall we pray? Lord Jesus, we thank you that you were so committed to people like us that you went through such incredible pain and suffering and loss for us. You did it all that we might be found. And you told stories, some like the ones we've been looking at today, where we hear about a shepherd and a woman and a father searching, and they show us a little of your love. They show us a little of the celebration that there is when the lost are found. And they show us a little about how you carry us back home, how the father welcomes the son and integrates him back into family again and sets him up for the future. Father, today I pray that these stories would become real for us. That you'd help us never be so forgetful of what you've done that we move on in our own strength. But that we would be utterly dependent on you. Daily. Lord, that we would rest with you carrying us. That we would rejoice with those who are coming to you and being found. That we'd be compassionate towards those who are lost and live in ways that we don't understand. Live in ways that are perhaps alien to some that we might count to be very important. But yet they're lost and you love them and you came to find them. And I pray that through the proclamation of your name and by living for you and by our love for others, more and more people might be found in this community. More and more would have the joy of coming to know you and walking with you. In Jesus' name, amen.